0: people wanna be good in times of sacrifice and the party is incredibly adept at weaving these narratives where it's about people pulling together and distracting conversation away from the ways that the party itself may have failed and that that was a hugely explosive issue in this case because there's every indication that the initial cover up is part of why we saw the viruses spread in the first place in my time Looking at China and studying China, I don't think I've ever seen the propaganda system under the kind of strain that it was trying to tamp down discussions of, for example, the death of the young Dr. Li Wenliang at the beginning of February, who was held up as a martyr against mm-hmm. state efforts to suppress the spread of this information. And you can see now that the, the propaganda apparatus has, has tried to co-opt him and has said that he was essentially correct and that the local authorities were the ones... Who made the mistake? It's just it's it's the same old song played over again with a few variations, and now it's being played on an international stage too.
1: What are they even My new in China. Matt Schrader, welcome football. to
0: Talk. Hey, good to be here. So, how are you
1: holding up? Old fashions are great. I did just order thirty dollars of of tea online, which I think is going to cheer me up. I never really got bai cha like i've definitely had it is is bai cha called white tea in english i don't even know I have the transition. I have the transition. So (laughs) I read something somewhere that apparently the the CCP is very upset that tofu is spelled um, uniformly around the world in the Japanese way, like tofu T O F U, as opposed to the the Mm. more like closer to Pinyin one. So you know, once they're done talking about coronavirus conspiracy theories, maybe we'll get back to the real meat of where the of where the battle for global hearts and minds is being
0: waged. That was an amazing transition. This is why you're a professional.
1: <laughs> professional? I don't think I've had an ad on this show in like four months. But anyway. The law
0: fair people are getting every penny's worth.
1: I will say though, the past few months have seen a an uptick in my Patreon subscribers. So I just wanna shout out a few of them very briefly. Nicola, Yannick, Robert, Miranda, Stuart, Jan, Albert. Eric, Judith, Joy, and Nick, you guys are all awesome and the best. And I'm just looking at, I'm
0: looking at the list here. There's one down at the, at (laughs) Boisilai.
1: That sounds familiar. (laughs) He should have enough money to to keep me going. If I could pull down more money from this than like the new unemployment insurance for people who never had a job in the first place that Trump just gave me, boys really got to step it up there, I think.
0: Well, and the nice thing is he's not really up to up to anything else nowadays anyway. Like he just work on his English, right? Listen to Jordan Snyder, Chinese Econ, yeah. Econ Talk podcast. I'm st- Yeah, no, but all those the Patreon folks, you folks are the real heroes. Thank you all. Yes.
1: And and to my Substack subscribers. But I didn't ask you guys if you wanted me to say your name. So I will keep your your identity secret for now overseas Chinese propaganda efforts, something you spend an outrageous amount of your life looking into. Matt, who are you and what do you
0: do? I work at a place called the German Marshall Fund. There's an initiative there called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, where I work. I'm a China analyst. We do work on how authoritarian countries like Russia and China affect the political systems of democracies. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how the CCP tries to get its message out in democracies and how it tries to win support for its policy priorities in uh, democracies around the world. Um, what, what are the highs and lows of that experience? The highs are feeling like you are doing research on and getting into subjects where it can be genuinely groundbreaking, really kind of getting down deep into how the party thinks about the the nitty gritty of politics and influence and getting people to do what it wants you know people describe the the CCP and the party system as a black box and it totally is in many ways but it's also possible to kind of piece together a fairly decent working theory of of party politics based on, you know, reading historical documents, based on interviewing people, based on talking with wizened elders of the field. And so just getting the sense that, you know, when you run across a document or a speech by somebody in like 1936, you know, something that Liu Shaoqi wrote in 1936, when he was helping run all of the underground communist cells in northern China, and you read it and you're like, oh my God, this is this is describing a philosophy of political practice that's still applicable today. Like that's a great feeling. Yeah. Um, the hardest thing about it is trying to be responsible in, in applying the lessons of the things you find in documents and the research you do and how you talk about these things publicly. Um, mm. Because what, what you find when you start doing this work very quickly is that the, the party has a preference for, creating relationships with with the establishment in developed countries. And, you know, anytime you start talking about the establishment, you need to be very sure about what you're saying. And if you're not responsible about what you're saying, A, you look silly. B, you can get people in trouble. You know, you can hurt people who don't deserve to be hurt. Um, and C, you can get yourself in trouble. Sure and so being able to speak responsibly about these things in a way that doesn't minimize the scope of the problem describes it accurately while still working to create consensus around the problem and what to do is is probably the hardest part but i mean then again that's just that's that's politics in a nutshell really so yeah. it's maybe a good way to sum it up is that it's a very it's a very politicized form of analysis there's no way for it not to be because you're 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 going right to the heart of money and power and people's interests. So let's start from the top. What uh, What is China trying to do in its overseas propaganda efforts? So I, I'm even going to even step one step further back <laughs> okay. um, and just say, like, what what is Chinese propaganda? Because people tend to go about it in sort of a piecemeal way. And they'll say like, oh well, you know, China Daily is is China's propaganda, and that's really obvious, and that's really upfront, and it's not that effective. Or they'll say, you know, trying to operationalize diaspora groups through the United Front—that's Chinese propaganda. And in some cases, go overboard in talking about how Chinese diaspora is drawn into this. It's it's really it's sort of a constellation of things from state media pushing out a message to state and party and party linked organs trying to forge individual relationships with institutions and elite and influential individuals overseas to do kind of uh, one-on-one thought work to try to win people over to certain party narratives that they think are useful or influential mm. it is reaching out to diaspora groups there's no question that that is a part of the strategy there's a huge part of the party bureaucracy that's devoted to this it's trying to capture diaspora media I think the way to sort of sum it up is that the, the party really wants to have, to the greatest extent it's able, a monopoly on how the subject of China is thought about, talked about, spoken, learned, instructed hmm. um, around the world. And I think you need to think of all of that as propaganda attempts because that's how the party thinks about it at home and increasingly how it practices it abroad. So what is in fact the goal of the CCP in managing and
1: presenting what they want to be the image of China abroad?
0: That that one I think we can we can answer pretty directly. It's it's to carve out additional space and win consent for the PRC's continual continued global political rise. Sure. And it's everything that that hooks into that agenda. So it's making sure that the that the PRC is able to retain access to high technology and to technological and scientific exchanges. It's trying to project an image as a benign, responsible member of the global order. And any one of another, you know, 10 other things that you and I could, could list off of. But it's it's at its core, it's about making sure that China continues to rise more or less unimpeded and hopefully peacefully. What are the key organizations involved in this effort? It's it's a really hard question to answer succinctly because the real answer is the entire party state sure. is responsible for, uh, quote unquote, thought work and propaganda work. But, you know, the, the organs that you're going to point to that are most responsible for managing overseas propaganda are things like uh, the propaganda department which oversees um, all state media, including all overseas state media. You're going to point to the State and Council Information Office, which helps manage a lot of the day-to-day of overseas messaging. You are going to point at the United Front Work Department, whose job is to ensure, to the greatest extent possible, and that, that caveat's important because the party doesn't always succeed, and in many cases doesn't succeed at all, in what it wants to do but to the greatest extent possible, extend party control and win consent for the party's priorities among the parts of PRC society that aren't the party. So, you know, private companies, universities, overseas diaspora, intellectuals, like these are actual sub bureaus of the United Front Work Department. They're just named like that. You know, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. It's, it's truly... A very large, very complex, and I think largely underappreciated.
1: Where do you think in this ecosystem you would thrive
0: most professionally? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. You mean you mean if I worked for the Chinese government? Yeah, be in trouble here, Jordan. <laughs> where 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 would I? Thrive? I you know I don't think I'd do very well in, in the Chinese government because it's it's so much of. Uh, professional advancement is about r- repetition of what the people above you say and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, pie, pie, kissing the horse's ass, so to speak, oh, yeah. kissing up to the people above you. And I I'm just uh, thankful. I don't, I don't exist in a workplace where my bosses have the personalities where they, they, they th- need those sorts of things. Cause I don't think I can handle that. I probably would last about a day and a half in the Chinese mm-hmm. government.
1: So Matt, do you want to, can we can we assign letter? Well, I know that all American universities now are going away from letter grades for coronavirus time, but I don't think we should let up on our, our grading of the of the CCP propaganda organ bureaus. So we're not doing pass fail. We're doing uh, we're doing A to F here. Matt, what do you think? What do you think the United Front at all deserve for their performance over the past five, 10 years?
0: Wow, this is this is a really interesting way of doing this. So I'm going to cop out, and I'm going to give the United Front Work Department an incomplete. Boo! Um, no! For the grade. That, sorry, oh that's my a legitimate God. grade. I can do that. I can do that. And <laughs> I, I think the reason for that is that we, don't, we really don't understand very well how the United Front Work Department's work manifests itself in the behavior of, for example, Chinese corporations overseas. I, I honestly think we really don't know enough to be able to give them a letter grade one way or the other. Okay. Uh, I think there's still a lot of a lot of work left to be done there.
1: And how about just like, I don't know, CGTN, people's Daily English, Global Times? Do you think they're 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 being their best the best
0: versions of themselves? Oh man, ten years ago they would have been F F F F and F. I think I think now they're probably up to about a C. Okay, you know, they're they're getting a little bit kind of zippier in their content presentation. Some of it, they're hiring on some some polemicists and propagandists who actually have some genuine flair for kind of stirring things up and inserting themselves into the discourse. Yeah. They're increasingly adopting some of the tactics you see Russia today doing that have been a little bit more effective in how they affect certain parts of the western infosphere. So I think they're they're probably they're probably up to a C at this point collectively. Okay. So, what do you think is
1: keeping these organs from reaching the heights that Russia has been able to achieve over
0: the past few years? There's a couple things. First, it is is that I I don't think you can ask the question in isolation, just about like CGTN or People's Daily or China Daily. I, again, I think you have to ask about the effectiveness of Chinese propaganda as a whole yeah. overseas because you know, I, I don't think those organs have been effective as effective as Russia today, but I think Chinese propaganda as a whole has been pretty effective in instilling in large parts of the global conversation a perception of China as, you know, that its rise is inevitable and unstoppable, that it's essentially peaceful and benevolent, that it is a rising technological and business behemoth, it's not necessarily that any of these things are untrue, but they also just airbrush out all of the unflattering parts of the China story that the party would rather people not know or talk about or be part of the image of China globally. Yeah. And so it's, you know, like how many people globally know about the hukou system and that they're like half the country is permanently dispossessed from, you know, healthcare and schooling and has, has more or less formed a permanent semi-rural underclass like that's yeah you know, not well appreciated globally. And I think to that extent, the party's propaganda has been very effective.
1: It's interesting because on the one hand, like it makes what Russia is doing almost more impressive because I feel like there's, there's like this CGTN is selling a fundamentally like more attractive product than Putin's Russia, which like doesn't really have a lot going for it. But it almost seems like when I, when I watch CGTN, like there is so much focus on you, uh, as on you said, Matt, of like, play of like putting China in this positive light and like showing all these like happy people and whatnot, as opposed to
0: Russia today, which is like just pretty content to stir up shit. Yeah, right. We were so I mean, you were pointing out the thing about telling a positive story. Something that's really interesting that I think that points to is, is how China's external propaganda really resembles the internal propaganda. And that those themes have like really come out strongly during the coronavirus thing. Where, you know, people joke about it on in China that the evening news, the first first 10 minutes is look how busy our nation's leaders are. Second 10 minutes is look how happy our nation's citizens are. Last 10 minutes are look at how crazy the rest of the world is. Yeah. And that's that's literally been the message in a nutshell of PRC state media externally. You know, the, the organs that are directed at Italy or Spain or any other foreigners, that's basically been what their message has been during the coronavirus it's been look at how hard we're working for you look at how good a job we've done tamping down the infections inside of china and look at how crazy everything else is all over the world we probably we've recorded 20 minutes we probably have
1: like 14 anyways Uh, whatever it's
0: not no i haven't read this but wait wait let me get the let me guess the assessments is like it you know may be a little bit more effective, but it will be limited by its state association. So,
1: so Matt, I hear you have a bit of personal experience in this world.
0: Yeah, no, I, I worked at the Global Times for, I forget if it's seven, eight, nine months, I forget the exact number, but you know, worked there for a bit when the company I worked at prior to coming back to the States, Smart Air, when we were trying to get Smart Air up and running and I needed a little bit of outside income. So I I doubled up working for the Global Times for a bit. What stuck out to you about the experience? Well, I mean, I, I I left after I edited a story about how a Uyghur academic named Ilham Todi was an enemy of the state and deserved what he was getting when he was being sentenced to prison. I, I mean, the, the real story on this guy is that he was like a moderate academic who taught at Capital Minorities University and basically was just like, can we not be so like racist and overblown in our policy towards uyghurs and he got thrown in jail for that and he's still in jail now but just having to edit a story about him i almost felt sick at my desk and was just like you know even if i'm doing this even if i'm doing this to help do another job where I'm doing something good, I can't, I just can't justify it on that basis yeah. anymore. So I, I had, I, that, that was a day where I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta find a way to go full time at Smart Air. So,
1: so aside from the aside from the sort of narrative that like the West is broken and China we have everything under control, there's also been a fascinating dynamic of uh, a fair number of Chinese government Twitter personalities seeding or pushing rumors that the U.S. was in fact behind the the seeding and spread of the virus. So, so what is what exactly is going on here? Whew.
0: Well, I mean that that's the sixty four million dollar question: is are we are we seeing a a permanent shift in how the, the PRC does information operations? Because the conventional wisdom on them up until very recently was that they don't do that kind of stuff like Russia does where they are just spreading outright misinformation, um, apparently in an attempt to muddy the information environment and they're doing it now. And the question is, is, are they going to keep doing it now? The PRC ambassador to the US, Sui Tian Kai, gave an interview last week to Axios where he more or less just disowned all of this disinformation around the origin of the virus. And he said that it's a it's a waste of time and diplomats shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of speculation in this the China Watcher community about you know, is is this a brushback of the people spreading these conspiracies? Is it an attempt to you know, extend the hands to the US and try to reduce tensions? The problem is that we've seen other state organs continue to put out misinformation since then. It's hard to say right now whether this is going to be permanent. I think to some extent that's going to be contingent upon how effective it appears to be. And at the moment, it seems like the attempts to spread these rumors directly through state organs, through foreign ministry spokespeople, provoked such a reaction that they've decided maybe it's better to pull back and reevaluate but i yeah. I, I really doubt this is the last we're going to see of the prc trying to do misinformation i mean there's when i talk about reading like you know, historical documents looking at how the ccp operated during the war against japan and the kmt you start to realize that like they they've got deep 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 roots in these sorts of dirty tricks yeah That, you know, that's been part of the party's operating system for a long, long time. And so, you know, even if we haven't seen them do this kind of stuff up until now, I I don't think there's any reason to think that they are not capable of it or wouldn't do it if they thought that it would work.
1: I mean, you know, Mao... Incited revolution across the world, um, even more aggressively than the Soviet Union did for for a handful of decades. So this is this is certainly not something that is that isn't baked deep into the the CCP's you know the CCP's operating structure. Though it is
0: interesting, well, seeing... that's kind of I, I mean the, the the exporting revolution thing, like that. You know, Xi Jinping before he came to power in 2011 he gave a speech to a bunch of. A bunch of expatriate chinese businessmen in mexico basically complaining about how people complained about china saying like you know and one of the complaints was well we don't export revolution anymore so what are you complaining about yeah like, i don't you know i don't know i don't know about the exporting revolution thing but you know seeking to turn people against one another seed disinformation muddy the information environment i don't you know i, I don't think there's any reason to forget to think that they've forgotten all of those tricks yeah,
1: it was it was interesting. Someone mentioned on Twitter the fact that there 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 may be not not only an ideological but also a generational split. And these are the sort of like young guns are the ones who are speaking up on on, on Twitter and whatnot. And there's a you know there's a there's an older generation, the you know the Tui of the world, who are not potentially are not quite as comfortable with with using this playbook. But as those um, as those folks age out, age out of the system, you may have a, a bit of a generational shift.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I, think, I think Tsui was also representative of kind of a different era in PRC strategy towards the United States where sort of the primary external propaganda goal vis-a-vis the U.S. was simply just to, to mollify us, you know, to sort of keep us from getting too alarmed at the PRC's accumulation of, you know, both hard and soft power and you know as a result like his sensibilities i think are much more attuned towards kind of talking us down and reassuring us and trying to emphasize that the prc is there for cooperation whereas you know folks like jolly jen as you have very rightly pointed out like they they've come up in a really different world like they've they've yeah. come to pro- professional maturity in a world where like China's ability to continue accumulating power isn't necessarily contingent on the whims of of Washington yeah is there a uh
1: is there an analogy for the Stephen Millers of the world what inside of the PRC government well I no I mean just in that like like a generation gap like raised on Fox News, more comfortable of just like not speaking the truth. Oh, it's it's an inter- it's an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought of it that way. So, Matt, how does the propaganda push around coronavirus compare to fat- pathways that the CCP has tried to manage natural disasters?
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the one that comes most immediately to mind is the the Wenchou earthquake, the Sichuan earthquake in two thousand eight. Th- there's not really been anything that's had like this international a dimension. But that's about the closest parallel that I can think of. I mean, I remember actually being in, I was in Beijing when that happened. I was on the 10th tenth, tenth story of a building in the financial district. And like, I was actually, I was in the bathroom when it happened. Ooh. And I remember like the doors in the bathroom started to swing and I started to feel, I was standing up and I started to feel a little dizzy and I didn't realize why I was dizzy until I was like, oh, this is an earthquake. And I had no idea what was happening. Other than that, was an, there was an earthquake until I got back to my desk and my coworkers were like, "There's been this huge earthquake out in Sichuan," and you know, in the the weeks and the months after that, you you saw a bunch of these really traditional narratives mobilized, where it's really about like playing up the stories of individual heroes and individual sacrifices mm-hmm. and making the sacrifice of the people and the the collective struggle of the state and the party all seem like one Mm. in people's minds. It's about building that sense of shared unity. But I mean, in a time of disaster, like you're really, you're pushing on an open door with those kinds of things. typically, In most cases, because people want to feel brought together. They want to feel bound together. I mean, I I remember a, a year after that on the date you know, the exact date of the earthquake, I was still working at the same place and we all we all took off work. We all came down to the bottom of the building. Everybody in the big office building, everybody stood outside in front of the building and we all stood there for, I can't remember how many minutes it was now, four or five minutes of silence, the duration of the earthquake, while air raid sirens went off. And everybody in every building all up and down Financial Street was doing this all together. And I, I, I mean a sense of shared sacrifice is an immensely powerful tool and it's not entirely based on a lie. Like people want to help each other out. People want to be good in times of sacrifice. And the party is incredibly adept at weaving these narratives where it's about people pulling together and distracting conversation away from the ways that, you know, the ways the party itself may have failed. And, that, that was a hugely explosive issue in this case, because there's every indication that the initial cover-up is part of why we saw the virus spread in the first place. In my time looking at China and studying China, I don't think I've ever seen the propaganda system under the kind of strain that it was trying to tamp down discussions of, for example, the death of the young Dr. Li Wenliang at the beginning of February, who was held up as a martyr against state efforts to suppress the spread of this information and you can see now that the the propaganda apparatus has has tried to co-opt him and has said that he was essentially correct and that the local authorities were the ones who made the mistake so you know it's just it's it's the same old song played over again with you know a few variations and now it's being played on an international stage too
1: sure um You know, it's funny because, like, recently I've been watching a lot of American local uh, television news coverage, and, you know, there are parts of it that are the same, and there are parts of it that are very different, right? You know, you have these, like, inspiring stories of the nurses that that are, you know, doing their best, but you also have, like really aggressive takedowns of Bill de Blasio and, you know, yes. really hard questions coming at the governor of, you know, where the ventilators are and why they aren't here yet. And you see politicians like going at each other saying, you know, from from, from Trump to, to the governors and whatnot, and you, it, you know, there was like a moment, there were like two, two and a half weeks where um, I think the censors were still on lockdown and on vacation and they hadn't gotten their, you know, ding talk account set up. And I think there was just... the <laughs> The 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 system was so thrown off balance by what was happening that you know you did see Chinese journalists really really digging and it's sad to watch that to watch that window really have closed to a pretty uh, dramatic extent. Over yeah, and,
0: I mean, Taishen in particular, I think, really needs to be singled out on this. I mean, they they continue to do oh. it. They're t- continuing to report on you know, are there efforts Hello. to suppress the real death toll? And the, the reporters Hello. from Taishin, you know, I think a lot of the Western reporters on the ground there in Wuhan, like, as, as long as you and I are here talking on something that other people are going to hear, I think we got to call out, like, like how unbelievably brave it is to be on the ground in the middle of a city that's been completely locked down uh, while you know everything around you is chaos and still trying to do the job of uncover stories people don't want you to know or to share a story that doesn't want to be shared huge debt of gratitude to those people at least from my part
1: so matt you've written a bit about how huawei echoes amplified and gets amplified by ccp propaganda you want to talk a little bit about how that worked between these uh between the the government and you know nominally private entities
0: yeah that's that's a really interesting question and i don't think it's one that has gotten enough study yet. So if you look at the themes that Huawei puts out in its propaganda, they they largely accord with a lot of the same messages that PRC state propaganda puts out. The, the one that you see the most is the theme of cooperation, that Huawei is here to cooperate, Huawei is here to provide countries with public goods, Huawei is here to make your life better. Now, I mean, that's that's pretty normal for a company. But I think to some extent that kind of speaks to the sophistication of the external messaging that the party state itself does, that they're mostly about putting out kind of bland, benign themes of cooperation that people can attach their own meanings to, or are very kind of vague and high-level and and easy to remake into particular situations. A really good example of that was around the last European Parliament elections in the summer of last year where you actually had Huawei placing ads across the continent saying, you know, vote for European values, vote for Huawei. The implication being, like, they're trying to identify Huawei with European values like connectivity and openness, which is just completely not in line with how the company itself actually operates. It's a private company. It's not clear who owns it. It's not clear always who its ultimate beneficial owners are. You know, it's not clear to the extent to which the party is embedded in the company. Although we know that several of the senior managers are party members, so it's it's an attempt to kind of put out benign messages of cooperation that sort of airbrush or allied important areas of reality. And you know, Huawei does this, I think, probably better than almost any other PRC private company. But it's some you know you see a lot of other. PRC corporates trying to do the same thing as well.
1: What role do you think Twitter, Facebook, YouTube should play in engaging with this overseas propaganda? Do, do you think the CCP has a you know right to speak, particularly since, of course, they don't grant Western media and governments the same rights that Western countries give Chinese firms and government entities domestically?
0: I mean, this is a really hard question, and I, I go back and forth on it myself, too. I think ultimately I've come down to the place where really we shouldn't be allowing PRC propaganda organs or even diplomats to put their message out on Twitter when they aggressively deny our own countries the same privilege um, of doing so on platforms like Weibo or WeChat because they're using them as platforms to present the same airbrushed version of reality that they present domestically. Mm. Uh, and now, increasingly using it for outright disinformation. And uh, you know, we we actually track internally at ASD where I work the number of official Twitter accounts that the PRC has, and that number has has climbed precipitously in the past year. We're now up to tracking somewhere around 190 accounts internally, and you know that's up from maybe maybe 50 in April or May mm. of last year. So there, there's a really aggressive push on to Twitter going on. The party state clearly has identified it as an area where it can get a lot of value uh, out of getting its message out. I, I don't think they should have that platform. Frankly, it's just not fair. But I, I know that's just my personal opinion. That's not an institutional opinion. There's disagreement even where I work about mm. this sort of thing and there's really good reasons to argue the other side, you know, that we value freedom of speech, that we value public discourse and public debate, we value the marketplace of ideas, but I, you know, ultimately I come down on the side of of not permitting them this platform A, because of the reciprocity and because like, fundamentally the party state is engaging with these platforms in bad faith. It, It is a nation state that isn't interested in the marketplace of, place of ideas. It's not interested in allowing or promoting debate. You know, at a systemic level, this is not how the PRC works, even though obviously there's vast diversity of opinion among people who live inside the PRC. And so permitting that system, the privilege of engaging on our systems that are based on a different set of values, which they then use to undermine I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's it's good policy or good strategy.
1: The coronavirus propaganda push on the part of the CCP really seems to have been changing the debate. I've seen a handful of senators writing uh, letters saying that these folks have been deplatformed. So it seems like the status quo may be changing with regards to these sorts of issues.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree.
1: So, so, so what about TikTok and WeChat? I think, you know, with everyone staying at home, TikTok... Use is going up. A lot of people who don't listen to this podcast don't necessarily understand just how big a role WeChat plays in you know ethnic Chinese life across the world. So what what is happening on these platforms, which may or may not be concerning, and what do you think uh, governments around you know democracies around the world should be uh, considering when um, thinking about thinking about these platforms?
0: Well, I, I mean, I think there's a different set of concerns around those two platforms because they. Sp- they speak to very different communities inside of democratic countries. I mean, with WeChat, you're, you're talking about mostly folks in the Chinese diaspora, but those folks are, you know, they're existing within kind of a walled garden of information where the party gets to kind of pick and choose and curate which narratives make it onto their screens. You know, obviously, there's limits to the party's control. You know, I, I think people tend to kind of blow out of proportion the 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 panopticon aspect of the party state. Sometimes, I mean, when you when you actually live in China, it can be sort of weird the disconnect between how loose the control feels and stories about tight control in Western media. Mm. But the reality of how it actually functions is that narratives the party really doesn't want appearing on these things don't appear. And that can really skew the information that folks inside of democracies who rely on this receive. And the censorship there is, is very aggressive. TikTok is different in that it's, it's directed at everybody in the United States. You know, anybody with a cell phone can be on TikTok. You don't have to speak Chinese to, to use the platform. The, the My little TikTok, brother just though. wanted
1: to make a TikTok with me this morning.
0: Well, I mean, I mean, if you guys are both decently good looking, there's a good chance that, uh, that TikTok's algorithms will make sure that you get out there.
1: What I think is really interesting about or one of the many things I find fascinating about TikTok is it seems that there are... You know, it, this isn't necessarily like a CCP propaganda thing, but there are different values. I think whether it's from living in a one-party state, whether it's just from you know China versus the West, that seem to be embedded in what is in, in, in some of the moderation guidelines that have leaked out about how TikTok is is regulating its own platform.
0: Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point, and I don't I don't know if I necessarily disagree or necessarily agree with the assertion that. There's no like direct party state propaganda stuff going on, but that, that's sort of a separate thing. The thing you're talking about is, is, you know, algorithms that automatically promote people who are good looking and don't promote people who are, the algorithm determines are not good looking, who, or who it determines are overweight because the algorithm has decided that's what's going to get more eyeballs. And like that's very much around like norms within the tech space in, in China. Uh, compared with norms in the tech space here in the U.S., you know, I I, I think it's in China in the tech space there's there's much less hesitation, like, to do literally anything and everything to optimize your product to the greatest extent possible, and there's yeah. less asking, like, you know, how is this going to affect people or how might this marginalize people?
1: I will say you I know, will say though that US, like you know. Ninety-five percent of the influ- of the YouTube videos that show up on my feed have above-average-looking people on it. So you know, it, I think well, I think you there's say YouTube.
0: Like, you meant you meant TikTok or YouTube? Oh, on YouTube, on YouTube. So oh, I mean, so you're saying it's kind of the same thing, right?
1: Well, I feel like I, I feel like yes. It, I'm not a hundred percent sold on it. I don't think any. I don't think any Western company would have a document saying we're not pushing old and disabled people's videos. However, I think that like, there's, there's just something about like the nature of virality and a lot of Western, uh, you know, Western social media platforms have bought into it, which is, this is what drives growth. And, you know, the videos that happen to drive growth are sort of the same all around the world. So, you know, it may be nudging in one way or the other, but like, I I, I don't, I think there's like something just intrinsic to the essence of, you know, growth, Consumer facing social media companies that want to get really big really fast and service yeah, yeah, no, the most like viral there's, content.
0: There's totally, I, there's, you know, I'm obviously not an expert on social media algorithms, but, you know, there, there's obviously a social bias towards people who are better looking that probably accounts for a lot of what you're seeing with YouTube. But I, I honestly would really doubt if YouTube had like purposely optimized its algorithm to promote better-looking people over those yeah. that the algorithm considers not. And I think that that's kind of the, the big difference there, that it's, it's baked into the tech on the TikTok side. I, I don't think you can get away from the party control thing in the case of TikTok either, because they they are inextricably a company based in the PRC, and they were, they were called the mat about a year and a half ago for how their platforms inside China weren't sufficiently in line with, with what the party wanted to be seeing. You know, that, that they were allowing, you know, inappropriate jokes about party leaders. They were allowing inappropriate conversation about the party and about politics to circulate on their platforms. And, you know, they got, they got called to the mat. One of their most popular apps got just taken down. People couldn't use it anymore. Some of their other popular apps got suspended for a brief period. And you know the guy Zhang Xiaoming, the guy who runs ByteDance, TikTok's parent company, ended up releasing this this really almost groveling letter at like three or four in the morning, where filled with CCP buzzwords. He's promising to do a better job instilling like you know the four consciousnesses, which if I explain would probably put your audience to sleep. But it, it's I mean to use an american analogy it's it's basically like if a corporate ceo here filled his letter with we're gonna make america great again over and over and over again yeah and And
1: included like the typos too
0: yeah yeah but i mean it's just it's basically it's it's a sign of like You know, ByteDance is really working hard in its PR efforts to try to to spin itself as we're an international company and we're going to separate the moderation in the United States from the moderation in China and we're going to work hard to educate people about our moderation practices here in the U.S. But, I mean, the ultimate reality of it is the company's based in China. Its senior officers are all Chinese and they ultimately answer to the party. And that makes them a potential vector for party influence.
1: Let's talk about tech and racial profile check and racial profiling, particularly in the US. So you wrote a piece recently with Peter Mattis talking about the right and wrong way to look at the espionage threat from China. What's the way to, as you write, thread the needle and counter China's determined norm busting technology drive without creating a new wave of racial stigma?
0: Well, I, I think this is actually a larger question about... It's not just the, the technology drive. It, it's really a, the larger question of, like, how do we counter PRC influence or interference or whatever you want to call it in general? That it, The thing that's really, really hard to do is make clear that there's an aggressive, revanchist power, the CCP, that wants to rewrite the rules of the global order and wants to put itself at the center of it and is aggressively, actively accumulating power towards this end, and is fundamentally hostile to democratic norms that most democracies think are important. Now, you got that on the one hand, and trying to drive home to people the, the urgency of trying to inoculate some of our political systems against the effects of this rise. But on the other hand, also making clear to people that in the vast majority of cases, that has nothing to do with regular Chinese people and their societies or people in the Chinese diaspora and their societies that you're talking about people who, you know, just want better lives yeah. for their kids and for their families. And I think that where, where Peter and I came down on that, ultimately, the way you thread that needle is your, your burden of proof for saying, oh, somebody's working with the CCP. You know, somebody's an agent in the CCP or they're you know infiltrating someplace. You know, the, the burden of proof for using language like that, it has to be incredibly high. You have to have really good, solid proof. You can't insinuate because doing that kind of thing publicly gives permission for people who may not understand the party system very well to be really irresponsible and how they throw those sorts of epithets around. And that can hurt people, and that can destroy lives. And it sets a bad example for folks who do enforcement and who do things related to the, the enforcement centers of the U.S. government who aren't necessarily China experts. You know, it, it can point them in the wrong direction and get their heads in the wrong place. And so I think people who, who work on these issues need to be really measured and really responsible in how they characterize influence and I think, by and large, a big component of that is is directing the lens of your analysis away from regular Chinese people and towards the interactions of people with, frankly, with money and power, towards their interactions with the party-state system, you know, towards people who have a lot to gain uh, from those interactions, who have business interests they're trying to promote, or clients they're trying to cultivate. And once you start looking at it through that lens, like... That, that's a lens that has really nothing to do with ethnicity you know do you have an Elon that's... musk riff <laughs> <laughs> oh Elon seems like he seems like he mostly has his heart in the right place I mean they're clearly they're clearly going out of their way in Shanghai to make him feel as welcome as possible so yeah. that he will then tell the rest of the world how wonderful it is to do business there
1: I don't know man I think they took him to like a heidi lao
0: Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, ha- Heidi Lao's amazing. <laughs> I mean, th- that's, that's, that's the kind of place that you go there and, like, you come back being like, oh, man, they really got their stuff together in China. Like, why can't we do this here in the States? But then you realize that, like, they have access to a pool of labor that they pay them all $2 an hour.
1: But what- so the one time I had expensive hot pot was it was this, like, Cantonese, like, chicken fish broth, and it was yellow, and it was awful. And... Oh, I know
0: the one you're talking about. Yeah, that's, dude, like, high-end Chinese cuisine is, uh, it it was just never for me. I always loved just the, you know, the Jia Jiaqiangtai, like, regular restaurant stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm not, I haven't bought Chinese ingredients yet. I'm embracing the sourdough trend. It's, <laughs> my starter is on day five. I made, like, waffles
0: with it this morning. I need to get a waffle maker. That's an amazing idea.
1: So Matt, let's 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 wrap up with something happy. You worked at Smart Air, which I think is one of the most, you know, one of the one of the foreign foreign created companies in China, which I think has like changed my life the most. Um, and allowed me to run my nine minute mile yesterday. So, 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 what maybe like what were what were some interesting challenges you guys had in growing and scaling up the business?
0: Yeah, well, first, so first, I, explain what it is. Uh, first, explain. What so, it is. smart Smart Air, um, Smart Air is a it's a social enterprise that was started by a pretty amazing guy named thomas talholm who has started grown run this business at the same time that he leads this entire other life as like a groundbreaking social psychologist doing amazing research on social differences in different parts of china you know he's a professor at the booth school now at university of chicago and you know i like all the credit for this goes to him. I I was I came in after the company was started. I was there for about a year and a half. the The growth of the company, its success, is all down to to Thomas and the team he's assembled around him. But it was really it was great to get to be there for a little bit. So, Smart Air basically the main thing is making do it yourself air purifiers, which sounds insane, but once you realize like that air purifier, like an air purifier at its core is literally just like a fan that forces air through a filter and that that's really like all even the the highest end air purifiers are then you really can like make your own air purifier just by strapping a HEPA filter to a fan and so like that's what Thomas did and he tested it and it was like man this really works like it's gotten rid of almost all the pollution in my room and he ended up making it a business, and just sourcing literal like tabletop fans from a supplier in China, and you know finding a a decent HEPA filter sourcer, which is more difficult than you would expect. And there's there's tons of stories even behind that one little thing, but you know just sort sourcing those two things and you strap them together and you turn them on. Uh, let's get a let's you've... get
1: a HEPA filter supplier story.
0: Oh, dude! I, I mean, so the thing, the thing that was really crazy, it was sort of like you know, we're not in Kansas anymore for me, was, like, uh, seeing how... So, like, Smart Air was, like, never that big a company. Like, I think, you know, the, the turnover the last month I was there was, like, very low six-figures U.S., and that was, like, at a peak of, like, smog inside of Beijing, you know, when sales just go crazy. But getting on, like, Taobao, you know, Alibaba's sort of Amazon shop, getting on there... And seeing how even for this like really tiny company that hadn't generated that much media interest, like how many people were trying to sell like fake Smart Air stuff on Taobao was amazing. <laughs> like there were there were page after page after page of people selling filters where they basically like you know the graphic of the filter was like that the text in it said Smart Air is trying to cheat you. They're making profits hand over fist. Buy our filter instead. And like we actually we actually bought some of these because they were selling for a third of what we were selling our filter for. I think we sold our filters for, I can't even remember anymore. I think it was like, like 10 bucks a pop almost at cost. But we'd, you know, we'd buy these and just test them to see like, well, maybe somebody else has found some cheaper filters that work better than ours. And maybe we'll just use those instead. And they were always, they were always crap. Like they were always just really, really bad. And so it was people basically like either pretending to be us and selling crap that didn't work or you know trying to undercut us by saying that we were a bunch of lying cheating thieves and then selling crap that didn't work but i mean it was it was crazy we were always we were always selling basically cost plus like very low labor costs that we were paying ourselves because i mean it's social enterprise right like the whole point is you're actually trying to do something good in the world with a, a commercial mechanism so I mean, Thomas, those guys—they're—they're they're amazing. It was a real privilege to be involved with them for a little bit.
1: And lastly, any Chinese literature recommendations, either in translation or in the Mandarin, for those those, those oh, daring man. enough? <laughs> uh,
0: I mean, you, you honestly—you can't go wrong with Moyan. Red Sorghum is his classic novel, and it was made into you know Zhang Yimou's classic film with Gong Li later on, but, like, the novel's really, really good. You know, it's almost... I, I didn't I, I didn't know a lot about it going in, because I didn't bother to, to read up on it. I just wanted to sort of have the pure experience. And it's got th- these really wonderful, like, magical realism elements and time-shifting and unreliable narrators. Like, Moyen's really busting out all the tricks in this kind of body action-filled, vivid story. So it's once you read something like that, you're like, oh yeah, like there's a reason they gave this guy a Nobel Prize. He's really good at what he does.
1: <laughs> and maybe finally, your your coronavirus game of choice, Matt. <laughs> for the record, China Talk has its own Discord channel now. I will be putting a link in the show notes um, for all those, oh, all those stuck yeah, at home man. looking to looking to bond. I think we might uh, be starting a, a Warhammer Online guild. Oh
0: boy, I don't I don't, need, I don't think I need another chat room to waste my time. <laughs> That's but, uh, I mean, a, a Game of Choice is Overwatch, you know. I actually don't even really play anything else. I just, at the end of the day, I want something that's just, like, completely mindless. And it's like, oh, I'm going to get on here and I'm just going to shoot some people in the face. Or I'm going to freeze them as Mei and just really annoy the other team. I
1: feel like Mei could be a Chinese spy.
0: I'm not a vibe I I guess oh, she's hey supposed now. to be Japanese. On, don't, but... we're, not, we're not here to cast aspersions, man. Like, Mei's a scientist all the more dude no (laughs) I just did that whole big thing about how we how we have to be responsible like you can't no 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 no, no. (laughs) Matt thanks so much for coming on China dude it was a pleasure thank you for having me on